Welcome to When Did You Know? I'm Andy and this week I'm joined by Sarah Aston. Sarah is an advanced public health practitioner and is a sexual and reproductive health commissioner for Torbay Council in the UK. We met many, many years ago whilst I was a student and Sarah was my manager on a work experience placement with the Edstone Trust, which is a HIV and sexual health charity in the southwest of England. I loved talking with Sarah. We discussed our shared experiences of sex education in the UK, Sarah's very moving experience of the London nail bombings in 1999, as well as her gratitude for one teacher who tried to make a difference in the face of homophobia. I hope you enjoy. So great to see you again. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. It's, it's, um, I was, it was really out of the blue and it was so lovely that you invited me and so lovely that you asked me. I, I wasn't sure you had the right person at the start. So um, truly, thank you very much for asking. I'm really flattered and it's nice to, nice to have a chat with you today. It is. And I think, I think the last time I saw you was at Plymouth Pride the year before. I mean, the last time there was one because the last few years it's been rained off all COVID. So yeah, that's right. Years, so. so yeah, this yeah. is really nice. Yes. So, um, each episode, I'm asking the same three questions, and we'll take it from there. To begin with, how do you identify? So, I identify um, as a lesbian woman. Um, I identify as a cisgender lesbian woman, so pronouns she, her. Um, I'm not sure I like the word, but I'm not sure I like any other word. It always feels like there's something wrong in my mouth when I say the word lesbian. But it's the closest fit, and it's the one that I'm okay with, so... That's what I'll go with. And what age did you come out? As with all stories, for all LGBT plus people, I think there's a short version and there's a long version. I'm going to try and tell you the medium version, <laughs> if I can. Um, so the short version is 18. And it was OK. My coming out was all right. You know, there were some good bits. There were some bad bits. Um, and like everybody, I, I've been coming out ever since then, not just then. So I was still coming out last week to a new hairdresser, um, which is always fraught and difficult, I find. Um, you never quite know how someone's going to react while they've got scissors in their hands. And, you know, every, every day in between since 18. I did try to come out when I was 14 um, and it didn't go so well. Um, and uh, interestingly, I was listening to your podcast um, by Luke uh, Pollard and I really resonated I really sort of felt um, a kinship with his story about well I tried to come out when I was younger but it wasn't very successful and I really liked the way he kind of just moved on to when it was successful so I think the story about when I was trying to come out at 14 was um, I had a really vivid dream about my best friend um, who's uh, uh, another girl um, and I just in this dream you know lots of crazy things were happening as they do in dreams but in this dream I kissed him and it felt like the most amazing thing ever like so much so we were walking together to school the next morning as we did most days and I told her and you know being my pal she she was fine she laughed it off and we stayed friends um and that was that that was that but um you know kids can be cruel sometimes um and it became a rumor and it went around and by lunchtime it was hot news you know Saracen's gay Saracen's gay um I didn't really know what it meant there were so many interchangeable words still you know is it is, it, is she gay is she a dyke is she queer and I didn't know really and I knew that, that none of them were good I've never heard any of the words in these people's mouths ever used in a good way or in a nice way so I just knew that whatever this thing was that I'd done it wasn't okay and I shouldn't have done it and I definitely shouldn't have told anybody so um 
I, uh, I quickly closed down about it. Um, yeah, kids, kids, kids can be cruel, really. But one of the things that did happen was um, the PE teacher came and had a word with me. And this is one of those things where it's only as an adult can I see what was happening. At the time, it was just all deeply awkward. And I wish she'd had just left me alone. Um, but I was quite sporty in school. Um, I used to play for the uh, school hockey team. I was involved in martial arts. I used to do sort of quite a bit of track and field and, and was reasonably, you know, sort of active um, in, in that way. But I remember the changing room suddenly got very awkward. People didn't want me there. They made me change on my own. They wouldn't, they'd all run out the shower if I came near the shower. And it, it all got really quite nasty quite quickly. Um, so the PE teacher had word with me. And looking back, I feel kind of bad about this, but what made it worse was that everyone knew that she was a lesbian. And the last thing I wanted was a lesbian to talk to me about the fact that I might be a lesbian. And I didn't really connect how this, this has kind of had anything to do with my lovely dream about my lovely friend. Um, yeah, so I'm glad that she spoke to me. She was a lovely woman, really, really lovely woman. And she was acting out of real kindness. Um, but at the time it just made it worse. It made it very awkward. And I stopped doing sport. Um, I just sort of shied away from it. and. Um, yeah, kind of started making all the excuses that everyone else made and that clearly they got away with week after week. And, and that was that, really. So um, so that was my bad coming out. <laughs> I have so much to come back to on that, so I will. Um, <laughs> and finally, the point of the podcast, and it might have been answered a little bit with the first question, but when did you know? So I think I knew I was gay for sure, probably when I was about 18, 17 or 18. But I suspected that I wasn't like the other girls for a much longer time before that. Um, I grew up in the same world as you and everybody else, um, where I think everybody just grows up, you know, they hold their baby daughter in their arms or their baby son in their arms and say, one day I want you to be happy and I want you to meet the man of your dreams and have kids in my case. Um, and my parents wanted everything for me that they probably, you know, most parents want for all their children. And I never questioned that. It never seemed to be um, an unusual thing, A, for them to want for me and me, B, for me to, to have but um, I wasn't really into it. Um, I was sort of much, I, yeah, I didn't really want to do what the girls did. So I didn't really want to kind of do makeup and play with horses and um, definitely not into dolls. I had younger brothers. Um, so, you know, burying dolls and soldiers um, in the garden, you know, they, they were all fair game. Um, climbing trees, riding bikes. Um, I was often called a tomboy. And it went with the sportiness, but I was just sort of physically confident and active. And I think it was only when other people Express negativity about that did I, I realized that um everybody probably knew that I was gay before I did <laughs> I didn't know I was gay I didn't know what it meant I just wasn't really that into boyfriends being a girly girl yeah so lots in there I suppose but yeah <laughs> there's something really interesting about the uh and you were saying about at the very beginning about how you identify and the words we use and stuff and there's something that always felt like a real when like Ellen DeGeneres came out and that's quite a while now um and she you know over said I'm gay and that I don't know why that's always it feels like such an odd not an odd thing but that feels like such um uh such a statement compared to saying I'm a lesbian or I am lesbian I don't know why there's something about that choice and words and I don't know why but that's always kind of played with yeah I think lesbian feels like the word I should use the word maybe I choose gay woman sometimes and for exactly what you've just the reasons you just said maybe it's a perhaps a softer version 
Um, but I don't know that it is, you know, I think gay men get quite a tough ride sort of talking about being a gay man. So I don't know, gay man, gay woman. <sighs> I'm a feminist. Actually, you often hear feminism then tied with negative things, a militant feminist, and whether there's a link there between feminist and my friends are, um, oh, she does wired stuff. What's it called? <laughs> She's doing a master's in linguistics, that's it. So, that's the one. <laughs> so that might be a conversation you need to ask with her about, yeah, that use of words. Anyway, off topic of it there. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's, so, it's interesting. It's really interesting, I think, yeah. Going back to that PE teacher, now I don't want to make any presumptions of age or when you were in school. But would, no, it's okay. <laughs> would Section 28 have been in then? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't I didn't leave um, secondary school until the sort of early 1990s. So my, my, my schooling education was largely through the 1980s and early 90s. Um, again, similar to Luke, actually, we had a, a sort of grew up in a similar time and space. Um, and when I was reflecting and thinking about having a chat with you today, it really struck me how few role models there were and how few stories there were and perhaps still are to an extent but at that time the the only stories were um mad bad or sad you know those are your options as as as, as someone who's um deviant from the heteronormative you know wet dream the only thing that's available is madness badness or sadness um so yeah finding a a, a different voice or story was really difficult um and Miss Birch, as her name uh, probably still is, um, she just got mocked dreadfully in school, really dreadfully. Um, people used to kind of make, I don't know, they were just all sort of a bit, well, they were all, it's, it's, Andy, the only word for it is homophobia. It's this irrational fear of this nice woman who just wanted to make us like get better at hockey. Um, and we were very good at hockey, but you know, getting out there and running around girls isn't about her being a sexual predator. It was about her being dedicated to our fitness, even in, you know, sort of three degrees sideways wind and rain, um, nothing else. I would not have been out there in the wind and rain. <laughs> <laughs> for what is worth, I, I was the goalkeeper and I chose that run because I could wear a tracksuit. So yes, I like playing hockey, but B, I wasn't, you know, like the centre forward. Don't let, don't let me paint them, you know, a wrong picture here. <laughs> so like, because that must be, and it is that whole looking back now, obviously, I don't, I don't know how aware you were of Section 28 at the time when you when you were at school, but kind of looking back now, that's also kind of brave because... She transgressed. She jumped the, she jumped the fence. You're absolutely right. She jumped the fence. No one else would have that conversation with me. And I knew that the teachers knew. I knew that the teachers knew. Um, but they couldn't say anything or they wouldn't say anything. And she was the only one that did. And if I look again, part of my reflection before today was... I don't think she could have lost her job, but, you know, it's a small town in Dorset. She might have, you know, people don't forget these sorts of things. Um, she took a risk. And I'll always be grateful to Miss Birch for that. So, you know, in the strangeness of the universe, if you are ever listening, Miss Birch, thank you for your kindness. And I'm sorry if I didn't understand how kind you were being at the time. But it did matter. I'm the same. When I was at school, there were no role, there were no role models. There was one teacher who, I don't know if he was openly gay, but I think we all decided he was. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know he wanted us to decide that. But then he, and eventually he left after one year. And it's always played on my mind because I do, he could have left for a million different reasons. But I know he had really hard time from students. Yeah. So that one role model, that one 
LGBT person I ever saw in school who openly, I mean, since I found out there were many LGBT people, there were everywhere. But, <laughs> but um, there was only one open one and, and he left after a year, possibly because of how he was treated. And there was, there was no one for me to compare myself to. There was no one to kind of know where I would fit in. Um, and I get, when did you kind of, when did you feel part of the LGBT plus community? Because if you've never seen those role models when you're younger, I think it takes some of us quite a while to find where we fit in and when we feel part of it. Oh, absolutely it does. And, and, and I think, you know, part of the heartache is that it happens when a lot of us are pubescent and screaming with hormones, you know? So you're trying to work out what, who you are and what you're supposed to do. And there's what other people think you should do. There's what your mates think you should do. And then there's how you feel inside yourself and, and trying to work all of those out all the time. It's really, really extraordinarily difficult, I think. Um, so I think it's probably fair to say that between 16 and 18, I tried very hard to be straight. Um, probably, you know, sort of fairly promiscuous in some ways. Um, but I think I was sort of trying to find that way to be like the other girls and be what everyone wanted to be. But the thing that really changed for me, Andy, was um, I moved from uh, where I was at school here to Plymouth when I was 16 and um, joined a local college and we had a sex ed lesson um, and it was the first time I ever had a sex ed lesson that mentioned gay people and this is how we met of course isn't it through the whole paradigm of sex education um, uh, and, I, and I wanted to ask you something actually um, if that's okay um, how would you describe your sex education in school Andy? Fucking awful <laughs> Yes, it was awful. Um, Doing three words, but fucking awful is like speaks for three words. Awful. (laughs) Yeah. There was no mention of LGBT people. Um, I can I can remember the the first time. So we first had sex education when I was in year five, Um, and I can still picture the videos they played us. So. They had all the year five children all sit in this hall and then just press play in a video and walked away. And um, and it was, I remember there being, you know, one week was about a man, the next week was about the ladies. Marvellous. Yeah. And then obviously all the boys and girls were separated for next week because, you know, we don't need to know about sanitary wear at all. Um, no, um, no, obviously not. No. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. And then, then the next week was about how babies are made and how they're born. I can still pitch that video. <laughs> and that was it. And then going into secondary school, so in Leicester, the school system's quite, um, you go to many, many different schools for different years. So I went to like a middle school for year six to nine. Um, and we literally were never, there was nothing. We were never taught anything. We had one lesson in those four years about putting a condom on a, um, very fake looking uh, penis. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> and that was it. And but again, the girls were learning something else at the same time, right? Some it, mysterious, yeah, girl stuff, right? That was, it. Yeah. that was it. Never LGBT stuff was never mentioned. I mean, up until Section Twenty Eight was two thousand three, I think, two thousand one. Mm-hmm. That one of those when it came out. So for a large part of my secondary school, Section Twenty Eight was still there as well. So they wouldn't have talked about it. Um, yeah, so in answer to your question, fucking awful. And <laughs> for a long time, and I think I remember, I don't know if I did say this to you, it was quite a few years ago. 
for a long time, up until I was probably 18, 19, I thought gay men just got HIV. I thought it just happened. I thought yeah. we just acquired HIV somehow. One equals the other. Yeah, yeah, because that's all I had ever learned was that if you're gay, you get HIV. That was the only message I ever had. And Thanks. because sex education never covered it, I just thought it would just happen to me one day. So I was never safe for many, many years. Yeah. understand the risks. And yeah, so awful. That's quite a legacy, isn't it, for fucking awful sex education to leave you with that hangover of, I, you know, HIV is inevitable for all gay men. That's appalling, isn't it? Yeah, mine was pretty, mine was pretty ter- terrible as well. It was um, the headmaster waving a, co- a condom around um, and then putting it on a cucumber. It Just on so many levels, Andy, it was so... A cucumber is quite a choice. I know, it's pretty obscure. I mean, I don't know if that was a Dorset thing or what. I don't know. <laughs> and the headmaster, who never took lessons. He never, ever, ever took lessons. But the one lesson he turned up was my sex education lesson. And he used words like contraception. And I was thinking, I, what's a contraception? What, what is one? And he, you know, just not, not explaining basic terms. Um, so I just sort of came away terrified of, of heroin, condoms and words like contraception. Um, and it made mm. no connection to me, who I was, how I felt, either about boys or girls um, or about myself. It just it was just uh, it's just a crap lesson and, and, and deserved the mockery it had from my fellow students. You know, it was just appalling. So anyway, when I um, at 16 rocked up at a further education college and went to a sex ed lesson, it was a sex ed lesson about HIV delivered by people who were quite young, quite funky. They weren't teachers and they talked about HIV and gay men and they talked about sex in a way that made me go, oh, you mean sex? Oh, oh, oh my God. Well, now I know. If you'd have just said that, you know, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. But I felt like it connected with me for the first time. And at the end of the session, they said, um, Anyway, we're recruiting for a project. So if you'd like to get paid to talk about sex, then, uh, you know, leave your name at the front. Now, I was a kind of uh, sort of shy girl from the country with lots to say, but nothing to say, if you know what I mean. Um, And I also had no friends and no job uh, by this point, having lived in Plymouth for about two or three months. So I signed up and um, that that was that was the start and the saviour for me, to be quite honest with you. Um, I joined a a peer education group. which was um, it was a health-funded uh, kind of approach to trying to address exactly what you've just talked about in terms of that miseducation um, of of everybody, but particularly for gay men about HIV and AIDS. Um, so it was in the early HIV prevention funding days, but it was also in a time and place where there were no treatments for HIV at all. The AZT trials were just sort of coming out and were nearly finished, but it was still really toxic. They didn't know what dose is and, and, and it wasn't kind of widely available um, for a few years. So I, it was very much still in the HIV equals death uh, and gay equals HIV, HIV equals AIDS, AIDS equals death. So th- that that whole sort of train just, just ran. And this project was all about trying to address that and debunk that a little bit. Um, so I learned about HIV and AIDS issues, but I also learned about gender and sexuality. Um, and I met a diversity of people um, from different schools, different backgrounds. Some of them were at university. <gasps> I was 16, you know, this is like, they're from a whole, they're like really cosmopolitan. Um, they're from a whole other world and background. And some of them were gay as well, or, or, or were, 
you know, undefined in their sexual orientation. So it really opened my eyes up. For the first time ever, I saw sexuality affirmed and respected and in fact kind of loved and fostered. Um, and it, it gave me a bit of space to, to kind of think about things in a new way, find my feet, grow some wings, try on a label. So I tried on the bisexual label for, for a year while still desperately trying hard to be straight, but actually knowing I was neither of those things. So by the time I came to 18, I was like, I've tried it with the boys. <laughs> I still haven't tried it with the girls and I would really like to. Um, I think it's time to come out. So, yeah, I came out at 18. And from my, I, the only experience I have working in that area is when I was a student. But it seemed, particularly with um, where we were working, it was a very, it was a very LGBT friendly space, but it also seemed to attract a lot of LGBT staff. Yes. Um, and I can't, I'm quite interested in if that's kind of the same across the board with all sexual health. Maybe. I've worked in sexual health on and off since then, and, and that's about 10 years um, now. Um, definitely begins with a two and has another number at the end, though. Um, and I work with most of my sort of sexual health colleagues these days tend to be more clinically focused. Um, but what I've, I think what I've noticed about people who are attracted to this sort of work is, yes, they may have questioned their sexual orientation and sexuality before, but actually I think that people who are attracted to social justice and sexual health is where you will find racism, you'll find homophobia, you'll find sexism, you'll find the impact of poverty and class on people. You'll, it's, it's an incredible field, if you like, to work in, and, it, and it's as broad as it is long. So it's not just about, you know, testing for HIV or treating gonorrhea or, you know, handing out the pill. It's much, much, much more than that. And done well, it's wonderful. And done badly, it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. And that legacy of Section 28, I've lived with Section 28 and I've seen it come and go, but I've also seen the legacy. I've never known anything to have such a long tail as Section 28. I met a teacher about two or three years ago, really lovely guy, and he just wanted a bit of help looking at their school policy. So I looked through the policy and I found the words of Section 28 still in his revised policy. And he copied and pasted from the last one and found some phrases, but it was... They were phrases that I recognise. So, um, you know, phrases like um, should not be promoted uh, or, or intended as normal family life and all these really pokey phrases. Um, and they still are there. And teachers, I think, to an extent, are still like, um, can I say that? Is that OK? Can, can we talk about that? Um, but I find that parents are much more empowered these days to say, actually, we are from a same sex family or... Um, I met one one sort of I was at one parents evening with some teachers and parents and um, the school were getting quite concerned about you know gender identity and and you know talk about mummies and daddies and mummies and mummies and daddies and daddies and people were doing the usual um, sort of shorthand thinking around oh well where do we stop then um, and she said well actually my child doesn't have a daddy and they went well, of course he does no 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 she doesn't she was conceived in a test tube from a donor and we're both very comfortable with that she knows where she's from I know where she's from you could not want her for a more loved child um but if you insist on talking about daddies you're gonna I, you're, you're insisting on on like me having you know having to lie to my child anyway she opened up this space and conversation with the other parents who you could see all just went what 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 
So I think the 1980s idea and pre of, you know, one boy, one girl, 2.4 kids, that's okay for them, but that's not how it is now. Um, and I hope schools start to feel a bit more confident about their ability to, to reflect diversity of real life. Um, it's not a new invention either. I mean, perhaps children, you know, who are um, from donated sperm and, and so on, the technology is new, but the idea of, of, of different types of families isn't new. And what you said that you've kind of seen that parents are more willing to kind of say they're, you know, a same-sex family, but what has in that, those few years that you've been working in this field, how much has changed in, you know, in reality on the ground in people's attitudes? Because we know that, I always find this with my work, is that policy has changed. We can change policy, we can change practice, we can train people, but actually the attitudes and the culture, how much has that changed? Well, I, I quite take your point, um, and perhaps not as much as some of us, including myself, might like it to be. I am delighted with the policy changes in the last year. I hope it never, ever, ever comes back. However, um, I do sometimes uh, kind of see things in some policy discussions or, um, or, or some political discussions where I think, you know, it's ever present, isn't it, this stuff? Um, and, and it's the price of eternal vigilance, isn't it? You know, we must be eternally vigilant that these um, absolutely draconian and hurtful legislations and misrepresentations of me and you and people like us don't go unchallenged. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely within my working life that I now can't be sacked for being gay, whereas I could have been sacked for being gay 20 years ago. Someone could have just said, don't like the look of your face. You're a lesbian. Get out, you're sacked. And that would have been fine. And when I explain that to my 14-year-old nephew, he just looks at me like, yeah, right. It, it, like, what are you talking about? Um, just com completely inconceivable that I could have been sacked for being gay. But it's true. It's absolutely true. So, but my main thing is that about stories and representation. Um, it, I don't feel like I could come out confidently until I saw people like me um, and having diverse positive role models was immense. I remember staying up quite late um, sometime in the early 90s and sneaking on um, the televised series of Jeanette Winterson's Orange is Not the Only Fruit, which I don't know if you've, if, if you've read it or not. It's a wonderful book and Jeanette Winterson is a fantastic author and her story, uh, particularly this story, just captured my imagination um, and there was something about a girl who thought she was a bit different and was different growing up and trying to come out her context was a very religious community um, in a northern town uh, but there was a resonance there and for the first time I saw someone else struggle with the same questions that I was struggling with um, uh, the, that Brookside moment as well in the early 90s where Anna, Anna Frail playing Beth Jordash. I mean, lots, lots of women talk about it. I, you know, it's not about whether we, whether I fancied her or not. She's, you know, she's all right. But what she did, oh my gosh, that, that was amazing. No one ever done that before. It was incredible. Um, so yeah, seeing yourself represented for the, uh, and not in a mad, bad or sad way is so so powerful so powerful and I I still wonder that do we have enough of a diversity of gender representations you know I'm a, uh, to look at I, I suppose you would look at me and say oh she looks like a lesbian I don't care what you know people think I look like but what I definitely am is a woman and I think there's a broad range of what being a woman is um, as there is for what being a man is and we now have um, a kind of gender fluidity and a, and a new language that's emerging about that 
which um, I embrace, you know, I'm always trying to kind of understand more about it. I, d I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit old school, but actually I'm, I'm very open to understanding the world and the new world as, as new generations invent it. And that's totally cool with me. But I'm all right with being a woman with short hair. Um, I'm okay with who I am. And I just wish I'd seen more people who looked a bit like me and were okay, really, when I was growing up. I might have been able to come out a bit quicker and, yeah, but it was all right. And I think that's really, I'm going to eventually do some point, um, I think in January, my story, because you know, I like to talk about myself. But Good, um, I think you should. So to me. Uh, <laughs> but I, but I've, I've mentioned before in previous episodes, like one of the, one of the moments that I realised who I was, was a gay kiss on Emmerdale. <laughs> yes, you, I heard you say that in the Luke one, didn't you? I say that because I listened to it with my wife this morning. She really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was that, and it's there's something about um, the importance of t television. It's kind of, I mean, and I don't know whether it is as important now because we have Netflix, and but the importance of representation in those kind of everyday shows that your parents watch or That's that were available to everyone, it really it really made a difference. Um, yeah, I completely get that. But on the, kind of the flip side, that we've kind of we've got there. I think with L and G representation, but bi and trans representation, I still think is not quite there where it needs to be at all. And you do kind of, or I think still bisexual representation is definitely kind of perceived as a negative thing still. Yeah, and it's the we're doing a lot of work at work around supporting our bi staff because it's really easy to talk about the L and the G and possibly the T but the bi is the less that's always forgotten. <laughs> no absolutely and, and, and quite right um, and I'm really glad that you're doing the job that you're doing you seem to be absolutely smashing it by the way so good on you. Um, yeah it's important stuff and you know, diversity of visibility for all groups is important you know not all you know LGB people do this not all LGB people do that. Um, my most recent, you know, enjoyable uh, moment was actually on Saturday um, where I saw Nicola Adams dancing in Strictly Come Dancing. And I, I, I'll confess, you might be disappointed, forgive me, I've never watched Strictly. I've never watched Strictly. I've, I've looked yeah, at it. I thought, need to view here. <laughs> 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 well, I looked at it and I thought, well, that's not me, is it? I'm, I'm, I'm not that hyper feminine um, person, you know, I could dance and I could dance backwards in high heels if I choose to. In fact, I've, I've got some pictures of me in high heels and pink dresses looking killer. I can do it if I want to, but I wouldn't feel comfortable. Um, equally, I'm not so butch that I need to kind of lead, hold the frame and I'm not definitely not strong enough to pick up those girls. But I look at dan dancing like Strictly and just think, well, that's lovely, but there's no place for me there. That's not for me. I'm not hypermasculine and I'm not hyperfeminine. You need to be one of the two in that binary positioning to do Strictly and to do ballroom. So when I saw Nicola dancing this weekend, I, I was genuinely moved. I was really genuinely moved. And they didn't have one person leading being the man or one person being the woman. They just did this beautiful dance together. And I'm really excited to see what happens next. So... If you can forgive me, Andy, I will be tuning in for the rest of the series, or at least until Nicola uh, leaves, which, you know, um, I might have to put some money down that she won't, but, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and actually, the, the years that that's kind of, you know, I've only really probably watched it the last five years. So I've not watched it from the very beginning. Um, but 
the the years of that kind of debate has been going on and on about whether to allow allow and, and I, I say that word and call myself allow same you mean allow us see that immediately makes me go well fuck you then <laughs> I don't want to fucking dance like you <laughs> what do you mean allow me to dance fuck off this brings up, that does bring out my militants I'm afraid sorry <laughs> yeah it's funny, but no, it's true. And even, but it's funny in that kind of vocabulary we use, allow that, even we say it. And, but the, the years that there have been so many arguments about it, when other countries have done it in their versions of Strictly, and professional ballroom has had same-sex couples dancing for years. It's not a new thing. And ultimately, kind of, it only happened because the ice, Dancing on Ice did it where they had H from Steps. He danced with a, a man. And it was the first time they had a same-sex couple on there. And because they did it, and it was the commercial interest that the BBC should do it, and it kind of, there's always, for me, this tension between, and it always comes out in Pride season when every company in the world has a rainbow flag on everything that they sell. And there's a part of me that is like, okay, I'm really conflicted because I kind of, this is great that, you know, they're supporting this, but actually what are they really doing? Are they donating to LGBT charities? Which, you know, nine times out of ten they are. But some com- companies do, and that's great. But are they really? I think M&S did the LG- lettuce, LGBT sandwich. I can't remember what's in it. Lettuce, guacamole, bacon and tomato. <laughs> LGBT sandwich, not last product season the year before. Honestly, Google it. <laughs> Which made me howl with laughter when I saw it. But all the money from it went to support an LGBT homeless youth. So I was like, okay, you know, it's really corny, but it's fine. You're trying to do good. Um, so, yeah, and that kind of always, that I think came out with Strictly, that the only reason the BBC did this was because they didn't want to look bad in front of their competitors. And there's always this kind of, going back to my point, for me, this tension of we're achieving progress and sometimes I don't care how we achieve it so if it's done in a cynical way that the BBC did it because they needed to look good in front of ITV and everyone else it's progress and then or equally should they be doing it because it's the right thing to do and that's for me always a massive tension yeah I, I can completely get with that as well and um when I was handed a Nando's pride chicken flag at pride a couple of years ago um, I wasn't really sure what to do with it for exactly the same reasons. I'm thinking, I don't really want to wave this Nando's chicken pride flag. It says nothing about my life. Um, where were Nando's in 1999? You know, um, I was in the bomb blast in Soho. Um, that was a really profound experience for me. And I think I mentioned it to you when we met many years ago. Um, and seeing how some companies did or did not stand up and how some people would or would not be counted. Um, and bearing in mind that the, the bomber who, who committed that atrocity was A, the same age as me, and B, he attacked the um, Asian communities and the uh, Black Caribbean communities in different parts of London. You know, this, this, the hate that people have often follows similar lines. It's against all groups of diversity. So homophobia is often preceded or, or, or um, not preceded, but it's often hand in hand with racism um, in my experience. So it's great that companies are doing that. And I, I really fear that the, the kind of pink washing that we've seen as a community over the years is, is a little bit too little too late. I uh, embrace the, the Black Lives Matters uh, movement, but I, I, I fear 
that cynical corporate response of people of companies and I mean explicitly companies getting on that bandwagon equally I think people should stand up and be counted so you're right it's a tightrope I'm not professing to know the answers I'm not saying people should do it or shouldn't do it but I, I think there's there's something about taking a genuine insight and sensitivity and remembering that you know chicken companies were sacking people for being gay 25 years ago um I know they were <laughs> you know the manager didn't like you off your park um and I'm not saying that it's about Nando's either but you know let's not forget our histories and our recent histories as well both as companies communities and individuals um yeah coming out is hard in some families because we've all heard our parents or grandparents or uncles and aunties say pejorative things when they see people on telly um and that's what makes it hard for us to come out or to talk about having a partner who's non-white is why would I tell you my partner's non-white when you say that about the people that are on top of the pops um and the, the, it's not just one or the other I think you know we have to kind of um, embrace social justice and equality in all its forms really it's not a pick and mix and I will not be part of someone else's pink wash pick and mix um, or what they choose to stand to believe in this month because they ill-conceivedly believe that I've got more money it's it's not welcome um, it's neither desired nor required um, <laughs> thank you <laughs> I'm going to climb off my soapbox now <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for my raise yeah. for being gay because of the pink pound. I just assumed I'd be earning double, like because <laughs> I'm gay. I mean, that's how the pink pound works, right? Right. <laughs> it's, yeah, God forbid you should yeah. be poor and gay. Oh. <laughs> I know that's not a thing. Don't lie, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, but and actually, though, and jokes aside, that kind of yeah, the pink washing the pink pound and we're joking. It's not a thing to be poor and gay. The amount of homeless youth who are LGBT and it's yeah and again it goes back to that well where where is the money where's the pride signs when when you really need it where I think what was particularly good about the Black Lives Matter movement and they really and yeah there were plenty of corporations that did just tick a box absolutely but one thing that really came from that is actually activists were saying no what else are you doing yeah so a statement is great but actually what are you doing where's your money going and and that was good but I think I do often think that actually sometimes the LGBT community have kind of lost our way a little bit. Um, not as, not everyone, but I think we kind of forget the, the stories that, the, you know, in how many countries it's still illegal to be gay, what the home office put LGBT asylum seekers through. We kind of forget all about that. And I'm totally guilty of that because I've got this cushy life with my partner, my house, my job where I'm basically paid to be really openly gay. It's great. <laughs> like, that that's such a a tiny experience compared to the majority of LGBT people. Yeah, around. yeah. I, th I think we've still got a long, long, long way to go. And I also think that we could still go back at any moment as well. Um, I think we need to remain vigilant and, and kind of hold that torch of hope for ourselves and for others. I think what's different is that as a community, we've got self-esteem. Um, what HIV and AIDS did to the LGBT plus community in the 70s, 80s and 90s was utterly devastating. Um, and I think it, it, it galvanised us as a community in many, many ways. And while undoubtedly the vast majority of people who were uh, disproportionately affected and who died were, were gay and bisexual men. Um, I know that lesbians were there, you know, we were sort of very much in the trenches and, and you know, we've all ridden different waves of our own, you know, gender-based progression, but 
I think a lot of the, the the kind of LGBT confidence and movement came from the HIV and AIDS movement and that act of pride, not shame, and about acting up and demanding medication, demanding to be seen in policy has led us to the, this kind of state of confidence that we have now. My concern is, however, and when I talk about going backwards, is I, I'm seeing staggering levels of ignorance amongst younger gay men again. Um, really, really high risk-taking behaviour, which I, I don't um, judge, but it, when it's high risk-taking behaviour alongside a lack of knowledge about how to prevent HIV, um, I find that kind of concerning, really. Um, and the prejudice and discrimination that some people who are newly diagnosed um, and perhaps some of the kind of longer term survivors as well, you know, we've as a community, we've got a social history and we need to take care of, of, of um, our veterans, if you like, of this social history, really, um, both men and the women. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's probably what I wanted to say on that one. <laughs> um, no, no, I think what I would want to say is it is men and women. Um, and at times I've experienced misogyny from other gay men. Um, and that's not very nice. Um, I've known people that have died too. Um, I've done my World AIDS days, I've done my vigils and continue to do so with, with gladness of heart. I find that the, and I think I've spoken about this on other episodes as well, is the LGBT community can, and anyone who's listening to this who is coming out, can be incredibly welcoming, don't want to put you off, but, um, but there are some really negative, we, it's as if we still like to put ourselves in boxes and I, you know, this is from a, a white gay male perspective, I certainly see it where um, if you're overweight, you're not really accepted. Um, if you're not masculine, you can't, you're not really accepted. And we're really good in a bad way at doing that. And I've recently started to, so I've got a new therapist who is an out gay man. And it's the first time I've had a gay male therapist. I've had lots of, I've always had female therapists, nothing wrong with them. But I realised halfway through my journeys with them, to say the X factor, my journeys with them, that they reminded me too much of my mum, so I couldn't actually talk about some of the things that are really specific to, like, to get to gay men. Um, and it has made the biggest difference. But And again, that links right back to that representation thing, that it, seeing an, an out gay man as my therapist has made the biggest difference to my mental health because I can talk freely and openly, and I've not really been able to do that before. Again, because I didn't have role models or people. No, and and no, there's something about what is it to be a sorted, you know, sorted as in you know I don't know unproblematic I suppose. What what, what does it look or feel like to be a sorted gay person uh, or lesbian woman or gay man? And, and I'm still not really sure. Um, I do I do totally recognise what you're saying though, and I, I'm delighted that you found someone that you can relate to and, and kind of move your journey along and, and recognise that for yourself. That's cool. That's really cool. We need people who understand our experiences and we need people to kind of understand that we are, like most humans, we are damaged, we are broken in certain aspects of our lives. But it's really hard to do that with people who haven't been there. And so I think that's that whole self-defence thing of, and you know, that internal homophobia, and again, I'm saying this from a, a white male gay man a white gay man perspective but that internal homophobia of absolutely rejecting anyone who's effeminate absolutely rejecting anyone who's too seen or too gay because we don't have people we can talk to about those problems and I think the reason I always started talking about this is that also links I I think to that risky behavior risky sexual behaviors the eating disorders addiction disorders we have as a community 
because we don't have people we can talk to who understand our experience. No, no. Uh, we've got really disproportionately high levels of drug and alcohol use in the um, LGBT plus community as well. Um, and we're, I think we're used to being in the shadows and being in the subcultures and existing and surviving and at times thriving um, in spite of what everybody thought we should be or could be or ought to be and, and all those other kind of um, connotations. But yeah, uh, there's, there's um, I've certainly had moments of internalised homophobia. I've seen it in other people. I've seen those expressions of hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity, you know, the really good girl, you know, the pleasing, um, good boy, good boy, good girl, good boy, you know, so someone who, you know, just can't please someone else enough. And and actually it's it's a kind of strange, twisted form of unexpressed contentment with, with one's own sexuality. Um, but if you don't know how or you can't see people who can and do express that positively, and I mean that in a sex positive way as well, you know, if, if you want to have sex with everyone that just landed in on the latest ship, that's fine with me. I mean, I'd like you to use a condom, but I make no judgments about it. But if you're doing it because you're kind of trying to fill some emotional hole or you're trying to, um, I don't know, bridge some emotional gap, perhaps, then I worry. And I think this is where good sex education sorry I've come full circle but good sex education is is not just about um what we used to call the germs and sperms it's about it's about spirituality it's about holistic it's about your whole self it's about your past your future it's about how you feel about your body it's about um body image it's about politics um and it's okay to have I, th I think it should be okay for us to talk to people who get that 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 universal experience I had therapy after the um, Soho bombing and um, it was with a lovely, lovely, lovely straight lady, but similar to what you were saying, how could she understand what it's like to know that someone hates me so much they want to bomb me? <laughs> like literally, they wanted to blow my head off. Um, and I was 45 seconds away from having like needles in my, in my body um, and, and all the kind of bomb debris. Um, and it was really traumatizing. And, much as she tried it was very hard to kind of convey that experience of I'm so disappointed with the world <laughs> that it hates me so much and I don't know what you're going to do about it but I'm really pissed off <laughs> um so we talked about anger and that's all great but she never really could see why I was so very angry <laughs> that's no I'm not nearly as angry anymore, um, but I, it does fuel my work and my efforts in social justice. You know, I don't want anyone to ever feel that angry about black people or gay people. They need to put a nail bomb in a bar. Um, I sincerely hope that level of fundamentalism and hatred is behind us. Um, and I'll continue to do all I can to, to stop that, really, or, or to educate people and create that space where there's no outsiders anymore, really. I've always quite liked that read. If you feel like you're an outsider, then it's easy to throw rocks. If you're not on the outside, well, you can just be annoyed and that's okay. That's a nice place to go to my last scripted question, um, which now you people have started to hear episodes they can prepare for, which is upsetting because I like to be in a surprise. What would you go back and say to your 14-year-old self when, um, when those rumours are going around school? What would you go back and say to 14-year-old Sarah? I hadn't prepared for this, so I'm not sure what to say. What would I say to her? I'd say, <clears throat> learn to keep your counsel. All of these people won't matter. You won't even know them in three years' time. Their opinions won't matter, and you'll be free to learn how to be yourself. 
So seriously, sister, don't sweat the small stuff. This week's news is next week's chip paper. Um, these people's opinions are don't define you. You define you. I think that's what I would have told myself. I was very worried what they all thought. And they didn't. It didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. A huge thank you to Sarah for joining me on this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the show and please remember to keep sharing the podcast with everyone you know, your friends, family, work colleagues, whoever, and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you're using and leave a review on iTunes. It helps to get these conversations shared. And thank you to Richard Abrahams for my theme music. Don't forget, you can follow me at WDYKpod on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Or you can email me at WDYKpod at gmail.com with questions, comments or to volunteer yourself for an interview for next season. Until next time.